Lost Knowledge and Forbidden Secrets in Ancient Egypt Esoteric and Celestial Origins of the Star Gods We are not including in our history the stories of Herodotus and certain other writers who deliberately choose fables over facts and spun yarns for amusement only. We will, however, outline what the priests of Egypt wrote in their sacred records, which we have examined minutely and thoroughly. The author describes an arcane doctrine believed lost to time. It may be based on events that occurred more than 3,000 years ago, but Kimwa still evokes the mystic heritage of Egypt. Traditional spiritual practices have always given people insight into their environments and allowed them to live harmoniously with them despite hardships that can only be imagined. Despite advancements in science and technology, we do not seem to be as equipped in the modern age. Undoubtedly, this is why we look to past cultures such as Egypt for the elusive insights and powers we miss. We are like Kimwas in many ways. We want to comprehend the mysteries of daily life and discover the source of all wisdom. Egypt's mystic heritage continues to attract our attention for these reasons. So many ancients spoke of a legacy. What is it? Egyptian legends freely circulated among travelers, as noted by the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, 60 BCE. Furthermore, the temples and tombs were regularly documented with similar stories. Some legends spoke of their gods, royal figures, sages and adventurers, who embodied the natural and supernatural forces of the world around them. A great deal of the information was gleaned from ancient texts. Yet they differed from myths of other cultures, including Greek myths, which viewed it as a symbol of natural phenomena or metaphor for the universe rather than a factual narrative. Ancient Egyptians were not so rigid in their philosophical thinking. They made no distinction between myth and legend. Chronicles they inherited from antiquity were believed to be actual events either during a historical time when their gods inhabited the earth or in a dimension they called timeless time, when human beings had direct access to divine powers. Because legends gave meaning and purpose to the past, present and future, they were vital and practical. Egypt's narrative legacy goes far beyond its creation of the material world and the exploits of its gods. They consist of the canons of their art, architecture, language and ritual, the foundation of a culture that sustained itself for thousands of years. This is probably the most significant element of the Egyptian legacy because it seems to have defined the society's overall goals and mandates. From farm workers and fishermen to scribes and temple priestesses, all temporal power ultimately rests with the royal house. The fusion of spirituality and science created a body of metaphysical knowledge that laid the foundation for Egyptian civilization. Could this wisdom be retrieved? The Egyptian literary heritage has provided answers to this question over the centuries. According to the ancient Egyptians, there was no rift between the divine and mundane spheres. They regarded the secular as a reflection of the divine, 
the natural world, including natural phenomena and animal kingdoms, was regarded as a reflection of the divine. Everything in it was divine by nature. Humans, trees, stars, wind and storms were manifestations of the gods, but these living things also possessed their own identities. Egyptian philosophy indisputably reflected this doctrine despite its thousands of years of existence. This immanence of divinity in nature is described in a sacred text from Ramesses II. Shu represents air, Nehe represents rain, and Ra represents the primordial ocean. Asa's soul is a ram, and Sobek's soul is a crocodile. Every god's soul resides in a serpent. The soul of Ra can be found throughout the land. The Celestial Cowbook, Dynasty 19 A holistic approach to one's spiritual identity involved unifying oneself with the gods and the natural world. Furthermore, the unity of the life streams drawn together by divine vitality is described in many ancient sacred texts found in temples, tombs, and ancient papyri, and they provide many details about this doctrine. Inscriptions from early funerary inscriptions summarize these associations succinctly. I am Asa whether I live or die. By entering you and appearing through you, you decay in me, spring from me, descend in me, and rest by my side. I am the God. I am the earth. The air that sustains the exalted ones makes me live and grow. Item 330 in the coffin text. In a form associated most with Egypt's sacred rituals, maintaining the unity created by these relationships occupied all members of Egyptian society. Through thousands of years of recorded history, this activity has been performed by a prescribed canon at all social levels. Consistency and continuity were based on the belief that their rituals were recreations of the divine acts before life began. Although these beliefs were fundamental to their worldview, their mandate was equally important. Additionally, the performance of rites was viewed as a high calling as well as a spiritual exchange offering countless benefits to the participants. Salutations to the prophets, the divine fathers, the priests, and the lectors who enter Amun's temple. We pray, through the rites and offerings, through the service of the priest of the month. You will have a life thanks to the great God. If you are in his presence, you will be flawless. With his blessings, you will be strengthened. A statue of Hawa from Dynasty 25 is inscribed with an inscription. The Creation of the Worlds Nature reflects the transcendent and cyclical forces of creation in Egyptian cosmology. This view holds that all life streams, even human beings, nature and the gods, partake of a process that requires a return to the creative source and a reappearance in the phenomenal world in a continuous cycle of renewal called Nehe, forever, eternity. In the liturgies of the temple and tomb, the theme of returning to the world of creation was continually emphasized. It was believed that the powers that brought the deity to the temple originated far beyond the sway of divine beings, yet were capable of carrying humans into the world of the gods. 
As humans, natural forces, and even the gods are subject to cyclic forces, this return was inevitable. Creation was ever-present in the temple. On approaching the holy precinct, a Temenos wall resembled the primordial ocean from which life originated. When entering the house of the god, one was accompanied by a forest of soaring columns reflecting how life first appeared as aquatic plants through the entrance to the sphere of creative powers. Further, as one entered the temple, one saw representations of divine beings exhibiting their nature in acts of creation in the physical world, such as the birth of royalty, the start of natural laws, and the setting of order in society. A hunting scene in the primeval marsh, where life proliferates and renews the soul, adorned the deceased's tomb, returning the dead to the creative forces in nature and the universe. Nevertheless, those who passed from mortal life to immortal one were not the only ones to experience this new phase of existence. In the same ritual processes that inaugurated their departed one's new realities, the living were bonded to these powers and were reborn into the field of creation. Cosmogenesis wasn't a singular event in the Egyptian universe. Instead, it was viewed as a cyclic process played out in rhythmic phrases, in which four dimensions exist, interpenetrate and interact through time. From this macrocosm, or the celestial sphere, the elements of creation emerge in the first phase from the world of Manu, horizon of waters. An image of it is a watery mass filled with undefined powers, where all possibilities are articulated but not manifested. In the second phase, the world of Akut, on a ominous horizon, is revealed as fiery light that impels patterns or forms to emerge out of the primordial waters. Rostau, horizon of spirits, symbolizes the third phase, the resting place of the forces from the upper worlds. As a microcosm of material life, this phrase indicates the containment of the sacred fire within matter. The world of Ament, horizon of the west, represents the phenomenal world we live in, in which cyclic forces dictate conditions of existence, birth and death. As this realm manifests the creative energies and their destiny for renewal, returning to the upper worlds is possible. The physical form in this world is also susceptible to mutation, which allows the conscious experience of moving through several phases of existence. Earth, Rostau, Water, Manu, and Fire, Arkut, are the ancient elements that make up the old universe. Instead, they are interdependent stages of manifest reality, instead of opposing themes in cosmogenesis. And they all have a similarly significant impact on the world of human life. They believed that certain universal functions, the Neteru, gods or divine principles, where the Nete is the individual deity of a specific place or action, came into being in these four realms of creation. Creation is organized and maintained by Neteru or universal forces. Furthermore, they perform specific roles in both the natural world and the world we live in. In this way, Egyptian culture depicted gods that governed biological processes, human bodies, and sky phenomena 
causing confusion to many early observers. Comprehensive view of the world In ancient Egypt, the principles of each creative family were articulated through different philosophical schools, whose imagery and temple traditions were unique. Hermopolis's cosmology was one of the earliest. Ogdoad consists of eight divine beings, Nun and Naunet, Hu and Huet, Kuk and Kauket, Mart and Yehuti, creating the elemental forms of life in the world of Manu. Ra, the sun god, precipitated life into the dark waters of Nun through light or illumination. By stirring and speaking the creative utterance, Nun, the primordial waters, brings forth life from the darkness. The solar triad is another group of divine powers with ancient origins, Ra, Kepri and Sopdet. By its imagery of creative beings riding cyclical barks across the primordial ocean, it is associated with the world of Manu. Powers of this kind circulate life's elements through epochs of time. Memphis, the world of Akhut, is symbolized by the triad of Ptah, Sekhmet and Bast, where the creator is Ptah who makes life forms by thought. They combine light and thought to evoke the patterns of life. Neid is the androgynous mother-stroke-father of the gods, the source of the vitality of all matter. From the immaterial world of fire, he extends his powers into visible realms as Knum, the fashioner of the material form. He created humankind and gave rise to the gods. All live on what he provides. He has been creating beings since the time of the gods. His manifestations are hidden among people. Ptolemaic Dynasty, Temple of Knum According to Rostau, the organic world of creation is governed by the Aeneid, nine members of Heliopolis, Atum, Shu and Tefut, Nut and Geb, Asa and Auset, Set and Nebthet. Creator Atum produces his divine progeny by spitting or ejaculating. Following them is the triad of Dendera, which awakens the creative powers within a manifest form, Het, Hair, Heru and Ihi. As the creative impulse passes from one state to another, the funerary quaternary, Lumset, Daumutef, Kepsinuf and Hapi completes them. Ament also has a triad of Thebes that governs the process of maturing and completing physical life, Amun, Mut, Kons. The invisible breath of creation is Amun. The cyclic triad, Taut, Hapi and Apep, brings completion to systematic processes and renewal in new realms. Both triads share these functions with the initiatory triad, Heruur, Sukkar and Ampu. A total of ten families of Neteru make up the four worlds of creation, representing manifestation principles and embodying the functions of phenomenal reality. It is inhabited by 42 divinities who represent the mystic forces of Egypt's pantheon. According to Egyptian spirituality, the interpenetrating worlds of life and their inevitable renewal are the purposes of this cosmological scheme. Moreover, it was understood that these processes were natural processes, 
but how they were achieved consciously and gradually comprised the legendary wisdom sought through the ages. Natural processes that occur in nature. In the phenomenal world, Mart represents divine order. Despite the conflicts brought by competing parties, it is the force that maintains harmonious balance in life. In an individual's life, Mart symbolizes the source of truth and righteousness, along with adherence to natural law. As the guide to harmony with nature and the gods, Mart was revered by ancient Egyptians. Images in temples depicting royal persons offering icons of the goddess Mart represent the monarch's reaffirmation of their commitment to managing power by the canon established by the gods. The act of providing Mart as a deity in a tomb also serves as proof of an authentic life and admission into the gods' region. In these instances, Mart is not merely seen as an all-encompassing force, but as an individual that can contribute to harmony. In the world of Manu, when the solar triad came into existence, there emerged a set of secondary forces. Ra, the sun god, came to possess five senses or cognitive powers on assuming consciousness. Hekar, magic, represents the generative force in the universe that first made possible the elemental substances that comprise the gods. Known as Ra's Ba, soul, or manifested appearance, Hekar was the first manifestation of Ra. This power is not limited to him. All of Esna's creations possess Hekar, including the Nater, the offspring of Knum and Neit in the triad of Esna. In antiquity, Hekar was regarded as the innate human sense and operated within the human sphere through magic. Among the Egyptians, eating and breathing were considered natural functions in the past. It may be concentrated, transmitted, and depleted in living forms, but it emanates continuously from the highest reaches of the cosmos. Egyptian high magic is rooted in the concept of Hekar in action. Funerary literature constantly expresses it. With the living using Hekar to avoid the danger of the unseen world, and the dead using it to traverse unfamiliar realms of the afterlife to meet the gods. Many inscriptions in the temples describe various aspects of sacred work, from the physical purifications to the preparation of offerings and the singing of holy hymns. All of these activities were performed to benefit the Neteru. Hekar is seen as a natural means for humans to communicate and as a tool for maintaining bonds between living worlds and extending one's senses into those worlds. Liturgical texts were not the only source of knowledge used to exercise Hekar appropriately and commune with the gods. Sacred literature was used to evoke the divine presence through scent, sound, chant and music, ritual gestures, including dance, and the observation of celestial phenomena. Using this method could invite the forces of creation into the temple since it was seen as an imitation of cosmogenesis. Several of the innate powers endowed by God to the human race to cope with the supernatural events are described in an Old Kingdom royal text. Hekar was made for them against occurrences by using as a weapon. For the night he gave them dreams to observe the day's events. King Merikara's Instructions, Dynasty 10 
Following the genesis of Hikasiya, innate intelligence, Hu, utterance, Ma, sight, and Sejem, hearing, four universal functions or senses emerged. As divine chronocritor and measurer respectively, Jehuti and Seshat are depicted in the Manu world as genii or helpers. They are sometimes described as passengers in the solar bark over the sky and as members of the crew of Ra, symbolizing the rebirth of divine faculties every day along with the sun. Sia embodies consciousness, intelligence, including understanding, perception, recognition, and foresight. According to the Egyptians, human beings are endowed with this function by their origins and destiny. In the solar bark of Ra and some other legendary instances, there is an image of Sia with a beard next to Jehuti and Seshat as the soul of Hermopolis. The sun god Hu is another manifestation of the conscious emanations of the sun god. He is the authoritative utterance that gives life to the creative impulse. Jefau is one of the divine offerings that feed the gods, and Hu provides the sense of taste in human life. The sun goddess Ma, sometimes called Iri, seeing, represents the function of sight. She had one eye that could see everything. Here, he emphasizes how important it is to pay attention and observe. Finally, Sedyem personifies the power of hearing, occasionally appearing in the solar bark as the hearing god. The management of the Egyptian gods was often invoked through a chamber in the temple known as the Chapel of the Ear, where specific requests for relief from suffering were made. Those who belonged to this faculty were regarded especially for reaching out to the god through songs, prayers, and recitations of the deity's name. Legend has it that Atum, the creator of the world of Ament, gave birth to the first divine pair, Shu and Tefnut, the functions of cosmic wind and moisture respectively. Initially, his creations and all that followed were bonded together by the cohesion energy of Sa, which encompasses the living universe. Ancient Greeks called Sa ether because it binds creation and creator together, ensuring harmony and affinity across these worlds. Yet Sa does not only represent the creative emanation. It also symbolizes the process itself, the outpouring, the same word also means the son and the daughter. Hieroglyphic representations depict Sa as representing divine protection, derived from the floating devices used to protect boatmen from drowning on the Nile. Sa is frequently shown at the center of poles to represent the morning post or place of stability in the heavens, and in representations of the sky, it means the basis for establishing an action or a business. Human participation was necessary to maintain and continue the landscape that these powers embodied. In both temples and tombs, the awakening and harnessing of the seven cosmic powers emanated by the worlds of creation were essential spiritual goals. Order and harmony are the principles that underpin all human actions, both religious and secular. All living beings are imbued with Heka, the creative force essential to sustaining and enhancing the divine order. Furthermore, 
the Egyptians understood that one dimension of human consciousness is derived from and eternally connected to the cosmic dimension of creation, and this power is transmitted through the innate intelligence of all life. He facilitates communication between the soul's will and universal principles through the power of authoritative speech. Mars' power of observation and knowledge comes from this, while Sadyam provides knowledge of these realms through sound. In addition, Sa binds the will of the individual soul and the will of the creative source, thus enabling thought to exist in its entirety. The human psyche and created worlds are considered to be infused with these powers. In doing so, they transmit to the living the same creative impulse as the demiurge and the gods that followed, providing a means of recapitulating the moment of Genesis and perpetuating the forces that came into existence as a result. The Sacred Science Egyptian remnants can be found in countless systems today, timekeeping, astronomy, medicine and chemistry to name a few. However, some ancient disciplines were considered more important than others by the Egyptians, at least according to the ancient Egyptians. They took the time and talents of learned specialists to build the temples, tombs and pyramids, and they served a spiritual purpose aimed at maintaining harmony between the gods, nature and human beings, communicated by the creation of legends. It was believed that the human race was endowed with spiritual technology by divine beings that enabled this interaction between life streams. The ancient world considered it enigmatic and sublime for combining language, art, science and theology. Through the ages it was viewed as sacred science, a methodology that incorporated all of Egypt's high disciplines to support the message of the creation legends that there is an eternal purpose for living to be aware of the unity of all creation. Several ancient cultures, including the Persians, Greeks and Romans, developed magical systems from this tradition. They introduced standard practices to Egypt such as sacred drama, the sacred teachings known as the inexpressible mysteries, and initiation rituals that altered and enhanced the perceptions of those participating. Nevertheless, the Egyptian form may be the oldest, and in the view of those in its surrounding societies, it was probably the most effective in achieving its spiritual aim, namely maintaining the bond between the human, divine and natural worlds. Sacred science in Egypt is exhibited in a wide variety of ways, in the design and construction of monuments that cannot be duplicated today, in mummification practices that elude our understanding, and in superior medical skills combined with magic, just to name a few. Though we may discern that Egyptian pyramid construction uses advanced geometry or the placebo effect accounts for the success of their healing art, the meaning and intention behind these endeavors are frequently difficult to ascertain. We have a lot of information, but how can we understand it thoroughly? Further, if we were to understand it thoroughly, where does it lead? Our research will examine the path traditional scholars have taken to avoid the implications of religion and philosophy that challenge the status quo of modern spirituality to find those answers. A consequence of this spiritual technology or sacred science was that the human form became a vehicle for higher functions. 
According to the Egyptians, it was a process of making gods. The knowledge employed to further this process reflects this profound goal. The three essential components of this goal were cosmic resonance, theurgy, and esoteric architecture. Additionally, there were several metaphysical disciplines included in these three components. Architecture Esoterica The Egyptians employed mathematics based on celestial motions, sacred geometry, and forms found in nature. They used figurative art and unique materials to build their temples, tombs, and pyramids. Based on models in heart, the monumental building encodes sacred principles. For example, the divine quality of light and permanence was attributed to specific stones and metals. Sacred structures were constructed with these materials to embody and maintain religious forces. Furthermore, each shrine was laid out to resemble the creative landscape. A god's house was a mirror image of its heavenly domain, with chambers, halls and passageways representing the functions of the deity at rest, active manifestation and procreation. Resonances with the Cosmos Celestial timing is the method of communicating with and invoking divine forces. Modern physics and cosmology schools may allude to this, but they fail to depict the universe as conscious and imminent as the ancients did. Natural phenomena are not random or obtuse in the Egyptian worldview. They are intelligent and organized. The Egyptians practiced sacred astronomy, observing celestial events in conjunction with their connection to and influence on terrestrial life. These beliefs stem from their trust in the existence of divine forces in all natural phenomena, such as the sun, moon, planets and stars. Their rhythmic appearances are seen as significant by other animals. From this body of knowledge, we derive most of our current prophecies, divinations, astrological and geomantic systems. Religion In spiritual practice, Hekar, the creative impulse, functions both as a sensory function and a divinely regulated action. In the ancient culture, sacramental rituals embodied the spiritual practice and expressed it sensually. The conscious faculties were employed, including sight, sound, scent, taste and feeling. Special knowledge was also communicated through the temple's art and architecture via symbols, color, spatial harmonics, and carefully selected materials used for dress and ceremony. Elements were designed to be used during episodes regulated by cosmic timing in cycles determined by the day, month, and year. This elaborate system was developed to synchronize mortal senses with both visible and invisible phenomena of the natural landscape. According to the theory, this would allow unity among the three life streams to be experienced and, more importantly, maintained. The cognitive approach, emphasizing intellectual learning and logic over symbolic thinking and intuition, first emerged in Egypt during the Greco-Roman period 332 BCE to 395 CE. It remains the predominant approach today in Western religions. Therefore, 
Even though much of Egypt's spirituality can be studied through its texts and monuments, a comprehensive understanding of the temple tradition's experiential form is crucial. In sacred science, these three disciplines, cosmic resonance, esoteric architecture and theurgy, formed a choreography. The Egyptians believed that this was a sign of their fulfillment of the spiritual gods of creation, to maintain the interaction between the divine, the human and nature. Being consciously and gradually transformed into divine existence is the ultimate accomplishment of human life. Sacred science was deeply rooted in Egypt's religion, government, arts and industries. The ancient Egyptians cherished this tradition as sacred. The overwhelming proliferation of clues has failed to reveal this, despite the plethora of conventional scholars. Every time we study Egyptian artifacts, we observe esoteric architecture, cosmic resonance and theurgy. From the data collected from the temples, tombs and pyramids, scholars can construct the cognitive features of ancient times. Nevertheless, they are unable to comprehend the significance of these enigmatic monuments. In Egypt's sacred literature, the pyramid and coffin texts, the Book of the Dead and the later philosophy of Hermeticism, this purpose is expressed consistently. The contemplative side of Egyptian esotericism can be recreated from these sources, and we can recover the ineffable mysteries that are our true heritage. Atum, my father, will have an excellent house created by me. I will spread it as far as I have been able to conquer. My offerings will be placed upon his earthly altars. Beauty will be memorial in his house. Eternity is the marvel I have created. The Dynasty 12 Insert Insert 1 Heliopolis Temple Building Inscription the Nile Valley's terrestrial landscape has unquestionably contributed to determining the scope of Egyptian spirituality. Geographically divided into two separate regions, the nation is connected by the life-giving river which flows from the south, the upper kingdom, to the north, the lower kingdom. In the north, a marshy delta once split by seven river branches empties into the Mediterranean. Here, waterfowl and reed fields contrast with the inhospitable knolls of endless sand, rocks and scrub brush of the south. There is a narrow strip of land bordered by high limestone cliffs and an arid desert in the southern region, which features a deep valley carved over thousands of years by inundation from the river. Egypt's art, architecture and spiritual practices consistently reflected the dual nature of the environment thousands of years ago. As a result, residents of Egypt referred to the marshes as the marshes of life and death, and the deserts as the sterile deserts of life and death, and the red land as the isolated land of death, remote land of death. Images from pre-dynastic times depict the contrast between the powers of the two lands and their union under the auspices of the gods and the royal house. The Nile was believed to irrigate the lands of the south and north at two unique sanctuaries where Nilometers measured the river's height at inundation. On Elephantine, near Egypt's southern border, lies Keber Set, Sanctuary of Set, while Keber Hor, Sanctuary of Heru, is located near Heliopolis at the Delta's geographic center.
These shrines represented both the division and fusion of Egypt, as their names suggest. Moreover, Egypt's mythological motifs drew heavily on the peculiar cycle of the river itself. Water flowing into the Nile from Ethiopia's highlands is fed upstream by the Blue and White Niles, which join in Sudan and arrive in Egypt by mid-July, from where it comes down to the Red Sea. When the floodwaters receded in late October, a thick layer of rich silt was spread over the Nile Valley. A highly productive architectural agenda was instituted in prehistoric times by the people of the Nile Valley that substantially contributed to their civilization's miracle. As the Nile rose and fell every year, profound spiritual themes appeared. An understanding of nature's transience and eternal qualities became embedded in Egypt's culture in conjunction with the astronomical rhythms that fused with and predicted the river's periodic changes. At the same time, their resolute and reliable return could be expected as qualities of transcendent, timeless existence, because gods appeared and retreated according to celestial conditions, signaling their connection to mortal life. The Egyptians incorporated these divine attributes into their art and architecture, anticipating that the gods in the sky and nature would have places that echoed their origins. In southern Egypt in the 20th century, the Nile ceased to flood the valley annually, causing silt deposits to disappear. While this is the case, the stellar landscape and seasonal flux still show the rhythm of nature. In modern times, the gods are no longer drawn to their familiar haunts, but their presence is evident. Only a seat where their powers can be manifested and honoured is necessary for them. Direction Orientation in ancient Egypt was determined by the natural landscape, particularly one's position on the Nile. Orienting ourselves in modern times requires consulting maps and looking at the four cardinal directions, north, south, east and west. Observation of the sun's path during the day and stars passing overhead at night led to an understanding of the cardinal points, but these were the directions for divine forces, not those on earth. A geodetic reference point for orientation is the Nile source. In addition to being the longest river worldwide, the Nile runs almost vertically from the south, upstream, to the north, downstream. All life originated in the southern regions for these unique reasons. It was believed that the watery world of Manu flowed from that direction as it faced south. On the viewer's left side, the rising sun and stars would appear in fiery Akhut, while on the right, in the airy Ement, the sun and stars would set. Furthermore, the observation's position, the north, would ultimately be associated with places of stability and unmoving forces. Rostau, the earthly world of creation, would finally rest here. On the western bank of the Nile, the right side is associated with the darkness of sunset, and on the eastern bank with the light of dawn. In this sense, going to the west represents leaving mortal life, and going south represents returning to the energy source. Temples of Note 
Sacred sites of the gods in ancient times were numerous and occasionally relocated or rebuilt in response to changes in the monarchy and motion of celestial bodies. Still, certain locations remained intrinsically linked to the power of specific deities and their traditions. We included the four centers that propounded the four rhythms of creation and those that promulgated the mysteries of exalted divine beings over extended periods. The ancient sanctuaries of Pe and Nechen, two lands, were established in prehistory and have continued to serve as the homes of powerful throne goddesses throughout history. At Buto, Per Wajet, an archaic site honors Wajet, net heir of the royal house as a cobra protecting her people. A pharaonic insignia bestowed upon each royal investiture was the Red Crown, which belonged to the god Horus. Both Wajet and Nechebet endowed the diadems of Egypt with the powers of dominance and protection in the form of vultures and the white crown, respectively. Priestesses wore the conditions of the two deities to present the royal insignia at the crowning ceremony as a gesture that all the gods of Egypt accepted the monarch as one of their own. There is complex and profound imagery associated with the serpent in Egypt. Native species include the poisonous hooded cobra that Cleopatra VII used to take her life, and the horned viper, both of which are equally dangerous. Snakes also protect the solar gods, who often assume serpentine forms to protect the territory of Egypt and shield their followers from harm. Upon approaching and entering the realm of the gods, the soul must make an elaborate set of journeys. Several reptilian deities guard the secret entrances or provide protection to those armed with their influential names. Barneb Jedu, Soul of the Pillar, is a shrine east of Bhutto. Barneb Jedu was transposed to Baphomet in medieval times, the alleged patron of the Templars after the Crusades, when Europeans learned of ancient temple traditions. The deity Mendes, Djedet, became associated with pagan sorcery in later times, and as a result with Set. This city was one of Egypt's launching points for its influence throughout the Mediterranean alongside Alexandria to the west in late history. In the solar rhythm of the cosmogenesis, the ram of Mendes embodies the creator's soul. His hieroglyphic sign, Ba, is also the ideogram for the soul, Bar, and in ancient languages, it also means appearance or visible aspect. Several powerful deities were associated with the ram, including Amun of Thebes and Knum of Esna. Architectural Esotericism Esna Triad's active principle, Neit, resides at Sais, Saut. Herodotus reported that this ancient city held an annual festival of lamps in honor of the goddess who ruled over the temple's sacred fire. It was the prototype of Roman oracular festivals. The car, human life's vital body, fashioned beforehand by Neit's consort Knum, is Neit's creation. Together, these deities imprint an impermanent form on the essential body and its life force. Often seven or more states of the royal car are shown in temples that depict the divine emergence of the royal person. Hebit, 
near modern Ben Beit el Hagar, is another ancient sanctuary east of Sais. This is the oldest shrine city dedicated exclusively to Auset. While her temples from the Old Kingdom through Roman times are in ruins today, it illustrates her power to devoted followers through the ages. From the eastward of Bubastis, Per Bastet, archaeologists can find numerous artifacts from several temples, shrines, and cat cemeteries dedicated to Bastet. Bastet was regarded as a protector deity for both temples and homes, as Sekhmet, Bast's human face. As an ancient traveler, Herodotus also mentioned the devotion of her followers, who shaved their eyebrows at the death of a cat and executed a Roman soldier for accidentally killing a feline. Car, the astral body, double vitality. The two most important and oldest cities of the Lower Kingdom are located at the apex of the Nile Delta. Heliopolis, Lunu, on the east bank of the Nile, was regarded as the city of the sun, where the solar cosmogony had been propagated since ancient times in the house of life in the ancestor temple of the early pharaohs. From antiquity it was known that the priests of Heliopolis offered knowledge of mathematics and history to Plato, Pythagoras and Solon. Heliopolis is the home of the Aeneid, the nine deities who form a well-defined cosmology of divine descent that begins with Atum, passes through the god-kings Asa and his son Heru, and from there to the royal line of the royal house. During the Old Kingdom, the Westcar Papyrus tells the story of a temple priestess who was visited by the sun god Ra and conceived three sons. After the divine coupling took place, the fifth dynasty monarchs, Usekaf, Sahura and Neferikara, built pyramid complexes on the west bank of the Nile and adopted the title Sons of the Sun. The Heliopolitan priests were entrusted with preserving the royal wands and scepters as insignias of the powers bestowed by the gods. Bhutto, Mendes, Sais and Heliopolis all formed a quaternary of sacred territories representing the ascent of the lower kingdom's royal dead into creation. These four cities served as a cardinal point in a journey for those who had lost their spiritual function during the trip back to their ancestral origins. In Sais, the body of the royal funerary cortege is interred with the ancestral spirits in the west. Afterward, the car is liberated from the body and renewed by the primordial ocean in Bhutto. The sacred journey then moves east to Mendes, where the fully conscious celestial worlds are formed by the renewed car fused with the renewed bar. At Heliopolis to the south, the cortege concludes, the restored functions joining the heavenly bodies in the Ach, light body. Adapted for ancient burials in later times, this magical journey was meant to initiate the royal soul into a realm of divine life, its source and its destination. In Egyptian cosmology, the clockwise procession of the royal funerary cortege stood as a timeless metaphor for the participation of all natural forces in creation and recreation. Located at the apex of the delta, the city of Akhtawi, Mennefer, 
developed from a geodetic center to a metropolis with vast dimensions. During ancient times, the temples in this region housed Ptah, the divine artisan, who governed all aspects of education, including theology, medicine, engineering, and warfare. The name of Memphis comes from Sokar, the god of hibernation, who was associated with Saqqara, a large necropolis on the west bank of the Nile. The gates to eternal life were located here for the reposing spirit of the lower kingdom. Pyramid fields sit next to temple complexes filled with statues of dead monarchs from the Old Kingdom and animals from Greco-Roman times. At a minimum, the monuments here date back 5,000 years, each reflecting the excellent engineering skills of ancient engineers and the wisdom of the old temple masters. While Middle Egypt ruled the two lands during several short periods of history, the distinct identities of the north and south led to different capitals that eventually united under a unified dynasty. One center, Hermopolis, Kemenu, became the repository of Egypt's mystical past, despite the occasional divisions. This was the earthly seat of Jehuti, the Neter of divine measure, and the city of shrines and temples here honored the deity in all his forms. As a recorder of religious speech, a god of writing, an inventor of numbers, and a master of divination. There was a legend that his sacred book, containing the ancient secrets of antiquity that once enabled humans to master nature and the supernatural worlds, was hidden in the repository of Jehuti's great temple. Ahead of us, we reach Abydos, Abedu, home to the main sanctuary of Asar the god of the past and the end of life, who represents the past of ancient Egypt. In the ancient world, Abydos was established even before recorded history existed because its funerary practices were faithfully preserved through the ages. The slain god, the restoration of his broken body, and his restoration as natural world governor. An expanse of land on the outskirts of the ancient city, Om el Kab known as the Mother of Pots, is home to fascinating artifacts of Egypt's ancient past. The remains of ancient cities, forts, and funerary monuments reveal the face of a civilization whose origins are genuinely archaic and may never be understood. In this great mythos, Asar was one of the last demigods to live on Earth and the benevolent ruler of the human race. The great temple of Het-He at Dendera, Ta-En-Teret, depicts the vast sky realm of the deity said to travel in the bark of her father, Ra. Her association with birth, death, and regenerated existence is commemorated in three levels of the divine house of Het-He, a complex maze of halls and chambers dedicated to her worship, a series of crypts inscribed with celestial images, and a set of roof chapels. The Edfu, Teb, and this temple mention a distinct set of ceremonies honoring the deities of each joined together for an annual wedding feast. As the goddess's bark was carried from her temple to that of her consort, the priesthoods and citizens of several districts attended the event. Known throughout the ancient world for its temples, gardens, caravan stops, quays, and ships moored there from as far away as Lebanon, Thebes, Waset, 
was a city of beauty and splendor. The capital of Egypt in several episodes for hundreds of years at a time, much of Egypt's wealth was accumulated in this great temple of the Theban gods we know today as Karnak. Today it is the world's largest religious monument, with hundreds of shrines. It has many temples, sacred lakes, and pillared festival halls. Temples embodying cosmic life reflect their unique architecture, such as Amun's sanctuary. A vast temple of Amun occupied the central plain of the city, while Mont was home to the temples of regional gods and the military quarter. During the pharaonic initiations that took place here, the royal house of Egypt transmitted the sacred blood of Egypt's divine ancestors through inscriptions on the temple's pylons and chambers. This city of sanctuaries consists of many spiritual traditions with its many priesthoods and ceremonies. The Temple of Khons, god of divination, can also be found here, as can the Temple of Ptah, which honors the goddess Sekhmet Bast in her aspect as a healer. Several massive funerary complexes built by Theban monarchs on the West Bank testify to a society based on the belief in the king's divinity and the lifelong service of his subjects to his upkeep. Among the most splendid examples of this tradition are the Ramesseum, Hatshepsut's terrace temple, and the valleys of the kings and queens. The most ancient mystery play is depicted in an inscription in the temple of the hawk-headed god on Edfu, more profound within the Nile Valley. The drama dedicated to Heru over Set represents the initiation of Pharaoh as the conqueror of chaos and darkness and his ascension as a god and a light-bringer. Some ceremonies reenact the battles between the two gods before they made peace and the gifting of the maintenance of Mart to the royal family. Although the current temple was reconstructed in the Greco-Roman era, the west enclosure wall bears evidence of its foundation in ancient times. The temple was founded and recorded by the Old Kingdom sage Imhotep, who narrated the tale of Set's defeat by the Heru Shemsu, followers of Heru, in pre-dynastic times. In the ancient city of El Kab, north of Edfu, Wajet's sister goddess bestowed the white crown upon the royal family. Here, at the seat of the vulture goddess Nechebet, one of the earliest pre-dynastic settlements in Egypt was also established emphasizing the ancient origins of these two fierce protectors. The Egyptian vulture represents several symbolic powers that ancient goddesses possessed. The essence of spiritual protection is bestowed upon the royal person by the gods at coronation, when the female vulture is fiercely protective and devoted to her young. In conjunction with the dominion the Uraeus image bestows, the monarch wields this power to protect the country and people she governs. The sanctuary of the supreme goddesses was located in ancient times on a serene island near the southern border of Egypt. In 394 CE, the last hieroglyphic inscriptions were carved in Philae, Per Auset, a stronghold of pagan religion. Auset's powers are inextricably linked with those of her consort, Asa and the priests of their gracious temple complex also honored him on the neighboring island to the west, Bigar. The river's legendary source, the deepest part of the Nile, 
was believed to be where God rests in the swirling waters of the river. She who is the most powerful established her seat on the river at the most sacred spot to bring forth all life that descended through the Nile from celestial realms. There were also shrines dedicated to indigenous deities at each locality, deities who had been influenced by the local terrain and culture. Ancient Egypt was divided into these regions, which developed distinct characteristics long before pre-dynastic Egypt was unified north and south. Lower Egypt was divided into 20 gnomes, while Upper Egypt was divided into 22 gnomes. Many gnomes had laws based on local religious customs, which may have been influenced by the local official, Nomark. In the 17th gnome of Upper Egypt, eating lattice fish was forbidden, as it represented Knum and was sacred to his cult at the Temple of Esna. Earth and sky are intrinsically linked and mirror each other in the Egyptian view of the world. According to this belief, the 42 gnomes, which were divided into regions by the 42 Niteru, represented the powers of the sky. Through the gnome spirits, in terrestrial form, who embody the functions of the gods, one can ascend into celestial regions. These powers were rumored to become enmeshed in the local shrines via the gnome standards. Gnome standards were viewed as powerful fetishes, as they contained the vital forces of Egypt's earth gods, whether they were carried into temples or carried into battle. Other potent influences were also observed in the land and gnomes. During the god's restoration rites, his parts were reassembled and reconstituted after Set had dismembered him. However, each was commemorated throughout history at a shrine, which was discovered by his sister Auset and her supporters. The gnome fetish, for example, was designed as a shrine that preserved his head at Abydos. As well as many metaphors of the active cosmic functions stationed in the region, the Asar members held along the Nile shrines are metaphors of the dynamic cosmic parts preserved along the Nile, known in ancient times as the Shrine of the Head, which controlled the functions of seeing, hearing, and speaking. Temples in ancient times were thought to be the home of gods, but they also served a variety of purposes beyond just religious ones. Egyptian temples served as cultural repositories, political and judicial hubs, and social nexuses. Per Divine House, primarily served the mundane function of educating the people, but spiritually, the Per allowed the powers of the Neteru to be ritually accessible to the environment, which is the primary objective of sacred science. Ah Per, Royal Estate, Great House the ancient temples of ancient Egypt served as centers of spiritual responsibility for all aspects of life. Both the cosmic and practical functions of the Pernete embody the three faces of human experience, creation, procreation, and renewal. Accordingly, it is not surprising that the temple's activities were carried out through a network of religious centers devoted to interpreting and transmitting those spiritual experiences. The repository of Egypt's wisdom was housed in the Per Ankh, House of Life, 
which contained scriptoria, teaching colleges, historical archives, and schools for professional training. Additionally, because that knowledge was so vast in ancient times, the Père Arche often had city-like proportions, with river quays, production districts, and lands for farming. The perfect temple of Amun at Karnak, which contained hundreds of temples, schools, and other buildings, is an example of a critical Père Arche. In another tradition, the living and the dead maintained a bond between their afterlives and the inner lives of their loved ones. Père Ar, Great House, was responsible for carrying out this function. It was once believed that the Père Ar fulfilled only funerary observances, whereas the land cycle encompassed the inundation of the soil, planting and harvesting. In these ceremonies, members of the royal house embodied the powers of the gods, and the populace could participate in the mysteries of the divine. Additionally, it was a means of distributing the benefit of the royal house to the region, which resulted in a cult of personality around the royal family members. As well as legal services, burial services, and employment, the Père R provided essential services to the populace. Ramesseum, on the western bank of Thebes, is an example of the Père R which once housed and employed thousands of laborers, artisans, and part-time priests from the region. Its purpose was to preserve Ramesses II's vital spirit. The temple functioned for hundreds of years after Ramesses II died and kept its spiritual agenda. Asar's temple at Abydos is another example in this tradition, like other sanctuaries such as Dendera and Edfu. Another temple dispensation is represented by pyramid complexes, extensive causeways, chapels, temples, and pyramids. The Per Nehe, or Per He, more commonly known as the House of Eternity, is associated with very different functions than the other parts of the temple. Per He's goal was to elevate to divine life the sacred science's spiritual mandate. This was accomplished by putting on an elaborate cycle of reserved festivals, including Heb Sed, and inviting a select group of clergy and participants, including members of the royal house and the divine house. Several enigmatic monuments, including the Osireon at Abydos, represented this transcendent function, including those at Saqqara, Abu Sir, Abu Ghurab, and Giza. Ancient Alexandrian sages of late antiquity were revealed to the sacred traditions of the Perhe in the waning days of Egyptian civilization. Regardless of the cosmogony in use at the time, or the size or scope of the temple, we find these three functions of the Perhe consistently represented throughout Egypt's history. It was not uncommon for religious and secular activities to overlap at different centers. According to Egyptian spiritual practice, which was inclusive rather than autonomous and focused on practicality for society and the gods, this is wholly consistent. Temples that were described to us by the ancients as emphasizing teaching, royal mortuary services, and restricted initiation rituals fall precisely into the roles of solar, royal, lunar, societal, and stellar initiatory functions. 
In addition to these categories, there are physical characteristics in the architecture and geographical locations of these three types of temples. Egyptian sacred astronomy best describes the nature of the cult agenda in each of these three categories and the kind of clergy needed to fulfill them. As well as giving rise to the unique temple traditions of Egypt, the two lands also reflect the psychic characteristics of the two regions. There was a dimension of cosmic and earthly existence expressed in various ways through the sacred cult in every part of Egypt, from the cerebral, enigmatic pyramid complexes of the north and lower Egypt to the celebratory, instinctive temple cities of the south and upper Egypt. The processions, holy days, festivals and dramas offered boundless glimpses into divine life and reminded the living of their origin and destiny. Those spiritual opportunities are still available to modern initiates, but first they must create the physical structure. Temple of the Ancients It is possible to apply sacred science anywhere, but the traditional starting point for sacred science is to dedicate a space solely to its execution. In ancient times, the construction of temples, sacred precincts, philosophical schools, healing centers, and memorials for royal persons first involved choosing an environment to implant a divine principle and maintain and transmit it. Père Nete's creation should be guided by these priorities and alone serve to define the purpose of the sacred space. Its value, size, or outer appearance do not affect its merit in the long run. In addition to an elaborate meeting hall or church, outdoor gazebos, walk-in closets, or abandoned attics can serve as conduits to spiritual life. Temple work is traditionally divided into sections according to function, regardless of the size or quality of the accommodations. The sacred precinct of ancient Greece was surrounded by an outer wall called a timenos. Some people mistakenly believe that the wall was a protective fortification, but it is the boundary between the celestial regions inside the walls and the world outside. The pilgrim is connected to the divine life of the gods as soon as they enter this sacred space, regardless of merit or status. Court cases were often settled here in ancient times. It marked the boundary between divine and human law. Its power is shared by both. Christian churches later adopted this tradition as the sanctuary, protective asylum concept within the sacred precinct. The Temple of Heru at Edfu in Upper Egypt is one of the most complete temples in Egypt and provides a comprehensive look at the ancient sanctuary's daily and cyclic activities. The temple was reconstructed by Ptolemaic monarchs several times before the restoration began in 237 BCE under the third Ptolemy, Euergetes I. Inscriptions at the temple attribute its design to the Old Kingdom sage Imhotep, and evidence of older construction indicates the temple has existed for many centuries. In the Pernete, features were numerically designed with great care. At Edfu, twelve columns are found in the Pruneos, before the sanctuary and the temple's great hall, to represent the solar cycle of twelve months and the scheme of twelve constellations through which the sun travels in Greco-Roman cosmology and astrology. 
It is a testament to Egypt's waning years, a sanctuary of the solar principle expressed in the enumeration of a twelvefold cycle, that this was the period of the last renovation of the standing temple. In ancient times, processions started and ended at the outer pylon of the Temenos at Edfu. Usually, the two massive walls forming the old tower represented the two horizons, Achet, where the sun rises and sets each day, signaling the dawn and dusk of the new day. Pylons marked the temple's perpetual return to the gods and the gateway through which the gods passed through light, since these celestial events regulated temple life. As the gateway to God's domain, the pylon marks the threshold of public access. In addition to these guidelines, there were several criteria for clothing, footwear and personal hygiene. One passes through the outer court, which once served as a venue for public and priestly gatherings. Offerings were brought here to honor the gods and celebrate the great festivals. As a result, participants and observers received spiritual benefits in the form of oracles, oblations, and sacred dramas. Human and divine forces meet in the outer court. The open court at Edfu is surrounded by a palace colonnade of 32 columns. Each temple's inner court represents a different world region where God lives and moves. As one moves into the interior of God's house, the chambers become smaller and the light becomes more selective, symbolizing the mystic passage through the sacred region. First, we come across the proneos of the Edfu temple, which houses twelve monumental columns representing the divine hours of the day established by Heru by subduing Set. It is located in this temple's house of the morning, where daily ablutions were given for purification before entering God's house. In this relief, the king is purified by a setem. A priest is shown wearing the leopard skin of a high ceremony, and the king is shown being baptized by Jehuti and Heru. Due to its association with renewal, sunrise was dubbed the dawn of the day. In the opposite corner of the temple grounds stands the House of Books, or Scriptorium, where a reader priest was on duty throughout the day. A library that stored the records and wisdom of the temple tradition was there, with 29 sacred books listed, one of which is Formulae for Warding Off the Evil Eye. God's tabernacle is considered the living core of the temple, and this area belongs to those knowledgeable in its maintenance and magical protection. At the deepest part of the temple, where the ground is highest, there once stood a black granite shrine housing the golden image of the Neter in the sanctuary known as the High Seat, which represented the deity's original incarnation on earth. In this sanctum, the image and relics of God were kept and ritually fed clothed and honored with litanies and scent offerings each day. The Holy of Holies is surrounded by secondary halls and chambers that sustain and support the life of God. The Hall of the Aeneid is the most important of these. The sanctuary consists of the inner ambulatory, which encircles the refuge of the east, north and west sides, and is lit by openings in the ceiling. The façade is inscribed with the morning litany sung in the daily ritual. Many rooms and corridors in this ancient temple attest to the meticulous and elaborate care given to God's house. 
In the Hall of Offerings, the Nater would present daily sustenance and gifts. On the left is an anteroom accessed by a straight staircase, while on the right is a winding staircase that ascends to the roof, where the hour priests would observe the night watch. One more allusion to the solar powers housed here is the Great Hall, which boasts twelve freestanding columns. While the eastern portion of the walls represents Upper Egypt, the western part represents Lower Egypt. There is a depiction of the temple's foundation ceremony on the south wall. Water, which was brought into the entrance of the west and consecrated for offerings, was brought into the chamber of the Nile in this area. On the northwest corner of the Great Hall is the laboratory, where recipes for incenses and botanical elixirs are found. It belongs to the master of the laboratory. Also in this area of the temple is the western entry, from which one can access the enclosure of the west wall engraved with the sacred drama of the temple, the Triumph of Heru. Meanwhile, on the opposite side of the Great Hall is the Chamber of the Treasury, which contains gold, silver, precious stones and the amulets. Daily offerings, including water from the sacred well, were brought from outside throughout the temple. Nevertheless, there is another staircase leading to the roof. Liturgies and details about temple life are engraved throughout the inner ambulatory on the walls. Dedicated to the Neter of virile power, the Chapel of Min contains hymns to him. The mansion of Raymond includes lists of his regalia, and the throne of the gods displays images of the temple deities. In this region, Asa, in his forms of Sokar, Auset, and Nebthet, presides over the initiation chambers where underground temple crypts can be entered. Mesin, Foundation, and Harpoon Room are alternate names given to the room directly behind the sanctuary, referring to the weapon Heru used to slay Set. An English Egyptologist, Arthur Weigel, the Chief Inspector of Antiquities in Upper Egypt from 1905 to 1914, recreated the temple's bark for a reenactment. In the double chamber opposite, there is a chapel dedicated to Het Hare and Ra. The images of these gods were kept in these rooms where they slept at night and woke in the morning to join Heru, Lord of the Temple. Room 24 was known as Behdet, the place of God's birth and the home of his regalia. Nut's offerings were presented in her chapel outside the covered temple area which contained an altar. As the temple's gateway to the realm of renewal, it was called the Pure Place. Ancient Egyptians spent millennia on divine work at the Edfu Temple, which is now preserved for modern eyes to see. As part of daily service to Heru, priestesses awoke, fed and maintained the holy environment. But during great festivals, God revealed his powers to society and these events are meticulously documented on the temple's enclosure walls. Scenes from the mythical Triumph of Heru, an annual mystery play that reenacted the victory of Heru over Set, are carved into the outer ambulatory walls. In addition to rites demonstrating Pharaoh's powers, the queen also played Auset, who guided her son in slaying his adversary in the play. A Modern Temple before approaching God, 
all clothing and belongings of the mundane world are relinquished at the entry. Modern temples should separate the entry area from the sanctuary where ceremonies are performed. It may simply be curtained or cordoned off to ensure separation from the sacred place. As in the ancient temple, there should be a place of purification where a period of reflection can be taken before proceeding with divine work. Offerings may also be prepared without distraction here for ceremonies. The sanctuary itself is one of the most mysterious parts of the temple. It is God's actual house and the place where His power emanates. Defending it from negative influences and treating it with reverence is essential. Sacred work may be done on the altar and the images of the saints may be displayed at a naos or shrine. During ancient times, creation took place in this chamber, and thus the forces that entered this sphere were viewed as powerful and chaotic. Sacred rituals, however, would direct these energies toward the temple's mandate rather than ambiguous ends. Thus, the Egyptians believed that these forces would be unleashed by opening the temple to the outside world. Modern temples could take a similar approach. After the ceremonies are completed, the participants should be able to retire to an area where they can reflect on the sacred work that has been performed. According to many tomb records from ancient times, refreshment was a crucial part of the process. Even in ancient Egypt, after a funerary ceremony, the participants would hold a feast outside of the tomb to remind themselves that they were returning to their mundane lives with nourishment that had been spiritually shared with the departed. In addition, food offerings were taken from the sanctuary after the netair was satisfied and distributed in the temple's outer courts to the priests and their guests. A god's blessing was believed to be the highest reward for partaking in such offerings. Lastly, within the temple space, the scriptorium should be a place for books to be stored and where people can study at their own pace without interruption. Temples should be arranged in such a way as to accommodate these considerations as much as possible, but the most crucial factor is the location of the temple in the cosmic environment. Ancient temples were oriented and aligned according to their axis, which is the path certain heavenly bodies followed. To build the great temples, astronomical objects had to be aligned precisely with a particular star that belonged to the temple's god. It was synced with its rhythm in the sky. The sanctuary was focused on the cosmic realm where the natars resided. Modern times cannot be cited precisely to a particular star's culmination in most cases, but a doorway or wall can typically be moved to change its general orientation. The ancient Egyptians, for instance, considered the east-west axis to be the path of vitality, or electricity as we call it today. Observers carefully observed the solar and planetary circuits, noting that despite each day's descent into the west, the heavenly bodies always infallibly returned to the east the next day. Hence, the ancient temple was orientated toward the cyclic return of vital energies. In Egypt's four great mythological traditions, Hermopolis, Memphis, Heliopolis and Thebes, each represent one of the elemental rhythms of creation, water, fire, earth and air. 
Each is an integral part of the spiritual work, although it should be noted that the liturgy provided in position is based on Heliopolis. Asa is the quintessential Neter who embodies the principle of renewal according to Heliopolitan imagery. In Egypt, its power is entrusted to Auset, a goddess of renewal who is also the mistress of all magic. The West is a place of passing into the night, an entrance to the shadows in which transformation becomes possible. According to the ancients, the north-south axis was magnetic, stable and static. The north contains the imperishable pole stars and is the region of Set, whose inexorable power is permanently fixed at the zenith of the earth, indicating that the temporal sphere is governed by forces that can only be penetrated by magic. As heavenly bodies ascend in the sky, their powers emanate from the south as the source of the Nile. As well as the quarter of nourishment and protection, it is the dominion of Nebt Het. Modern temples can be oriented either way and open in cardinal directions to ancient temples. As each creation station represents one of the four directions, no one order was considered adverse. However, its location should be considered. Although the east is highly energetic, it is subject to constant movement and change due to the rhythm of planetary and stellar movements. As the heavenly asterisms return to the western horizon, the west invites repose and reflection. However, the north discourages change. Fluid south requires constant adjustment. Temple work will, in general, encourage such circumstances by its orientation. A winged solar disk was often found over the lintel of the doorways or the opening of chambers in ancient temples. Hence, the symbol indicates the solar axis, chamber entries in the temple, and an apotropaic effect. Edfu Temple's walls were inscribed with the story of Heru and the winged disc, which inspired the symbol. A young god named Pharaoh battled his enemies in this saga by turning into a winged disc. Two cobras flank the icon representing Auset and Nebthet, who accompany him on his quest and protect him. Sacred pathways into the temple are marked by obelisks or benbens, ben to rise or ascend. As symbols of cosmic powers, obelisks were placed at the gateway of the solar or stellar axis to form the horizon of every temple. A temple may be dedicated to the opening of the mouth ceremony after constructing the space is complete. Egyptian temples were built following a design that echoed the mythological origins of the first divine house, the place of rest for the sun god on newly born land at the beginning of time. The four creation worlds of Manu, Akut, Rustau and Ament are represented at the cardinal quarters of the sacred territory. These four realms represent states of being that can also be accessed as states of being in the temples. At the time of the establishment of the Divine House, the Neter was believed to descend through these dimensions and rest upon its consecrated mound, as in ancient times. As a result, the temple can manifest its creative nature through the rituals celebrated in the cardinal quarters which house those powers. The human body was divided into 18 parts during the Old Kingdom, from the ground to the hairline, 19 to the top of the head. The navel is located in the eleventh unit of the body, 
or plus 1.636366. According to Diodorus, there were 21 units in the canon of the New Kingdom. The navel of the body is located at the 13th unit, i.e. plus 1.61538. Leonardo da Vinci defines the phi proportion as being related to the golden section's balanced ratio, as shown by the figure. In the Pernete, the texts were strictly organized to emulate the levels of spiritual reality in the universe and the circuit of natural forces. Temple chamber walls were inscribed clockwise. The guidelines on the function of the chamber, ritual instructions, and contents of the sacred space were carefully explained to you upon entering, starting from the left and going around the room to the right. In the same clockwise direction, the festivals of the temple and its history were recorded on the outside walls. A time-honored canon also guided the organization of the inscription in levels. The horizontal registers in temple chambers display information in a pattern that begins at the base with the founding of the temple and represents the past. The daily rituals and commemorations within the temple encompass the present and the unique celebrations and observances specific to the nature of the temple represent the future and the timeless realm of the Divine House. In the celestial worlds, layered time is also reflected in the spiritual practice of the temple, where the preliminary rites of a ceremony represent the creation of the universe, bathing and purification, followed by the daily tradition of the nature, the birth and feeding of the god. Moreover, the great feasts of the temple enacted the acts of the gods that endowed humans with the power to do things. Colors in the temple also reinforced the idea that the divine descended through nature and into the temple for the benefit of humans. Color represented cosmic substance emanated by the gods to the Egyptians. It was more than visual quality. As a symbol of life, blood and vital organs, red, desher, was used to designate ceremonial objects that maintained and transmitted the essence of life. As a subjugator of dark forces and a vital principle that awakens the temple's life force, the king may occasionally be depicted with red skin. Due to these traditions, red is used sparingly in the temple environment to describe dangerous and violent gods, acts and emotions. Set is the red-eyed one. Nut Amun and ascended humans are described by the color blue, Etiu, referring to the physical attributes of the stellar gods. The absence of color in white, Hedge, depicts powerful entities, especially winged beings such as vultures, ibises, and the Bennu, phoenix of Heliopolis. The ancient Egyptians also saw black as a color of death and mourning after the flood receded and revealed the rich deposits left by the annual flood, which they associated with the black land of Egypt, Cairn. Also, this is the color of Asar in his hibernating passive state until he is revived and assumes the color of natural life, green. The Arabic name for Egypt, Al-Khemi, has preserved the genuine mystery of the land via this ancient name and the transformation brought about by the river. The name for green, Waj, symbolizes a goddess who bestows goodness, growth and prosperity upon human beings. Malachite, the green mineral associated with this color, embodies this meaning. 
women's skin was colored yellow, kenet, while men's was a rich brown color. As a result, inscriptions and statuary used this convention to symbolize the psychic connection between the sexes. Lunar, brown, male, and solar, yellow, female. The quail chick has a yellow color associated with it, while the ripple of water has a blue color. The great temple centers were also associated with colors, including Heliopolis, Earth, Memphis, Fire, Hermopolis, Water, and Thebes, Air. Both Edfu and Dendera, sanctuaries of Fire and Earth, Het Hair and Heru, are red. Abydos is the abode of Earth, and Water, Asar, is associated with green. Divine principles were regarded as emanating from metals. As gold was viewed as the flesh of the gods, Egyptian temples were filled with gold furnishings and decorations. In contrast, silver was regarded as inferior due to its corrosive qualities, but it produced electrum, a precious metal used in statues and obelisks when mixed with gold. The female Neteru revered copper and used it to create mirrors, crowns, and discs for divination. Historically, Lead was extensively used to produce ritual objects and amulets, valued for their durability and weight. Even though meteoric iron is rare, it was used for ceremonial objects in the highest magic, and was considered a divine substance, the metal of heaven, BRN Pet. The temple was founded. For the ancient Egyptians, the metaphysical construction of the temple was the most critical work. A divine house was built by assembling all the specialists in ancient societies, including engineers, builders, spiritual advisors, technicians, and members of the royal house, who dedicated it to the gods for all time. For every divine house, a careful plan was followed that never departed from the tradition. The cardinal directions of the temple, East, South, West, North were established before the ground was broken in the Misen foundation ceremony. To witness the foundation of the Divine House, the four winds, or four cultic gods of creation, were summoned magically from each corner of the precinct using astronomical and geodetic methods. The temple inscriptions at Dendera reveal that temple astronomers and priestesses determined the cosmic alignment of the temple and then priestly assemblies conducted elaborate rituals to purify, dedicate, and embody its purpose. Pharaoh then broke the ground and buried brick amulets of the elemental forces that were supposed to grow out of the bed and make up the spiritual body of the temple. The ceremony of the four torches is used to establish the place of mystic transformation of the departing soul in dedicating the tomb to the dead. Day's Book of Going Forth states in Chapter 13, 7, that four officiants, Imset, Daumutef, Kepsinuf, and Harpy, mark the tomb's cardinal places with torches and enliven the space with celestial fire. To create a magical act in the four dimensions of creation with the four characteristics of physical substance, these four deities, or four genii, are required. At the beginning of time, when the universe first came into existence, the Neteru transposed primordial chaos into order by establishing the Four Quarters. Because of these ancient rites, the Mesen Het Neter, 
founding of the Divine House rituals, found the sacred precinct in the temple. This rite recreates the act of creation within the immediate environment and transforms it into the territory of the primeval. Although the founding ceremony is intended in some traditions to protect participants from outside threats, it also includes more transcendent purposes in Egyptian culture. As the genesis of the gods defined the ancient cosmogony, so did the background to the ritual. It is recounted that the Memphite creation was fiery and volatile, with Ptah as its creative source. In contrast, the Theban creation is Aeolian and Auric, mirroring composition as reflected in Omun, the Hidden. In this liturgy, the four cardinal powers are expressed by the four terrestrial Neteru of Heliopolis, who speak of how the physical world is sustained after arising from the primeval waters, following Nut and Geb's marriage. In this vision, Shu, Neter of air and space, envisioned erecting four pillars in the sky. Sunrise and beginnings are associated with the east, the first quarter. Asa is located at this station, whose function is germination. The celestial bodies seem to culminate in the sky and radiate their power within the next quarter. It is the station of Nebdhet, the god of sustenance, followed by the western quarter, where the sun retires, where Auset, the god of birth, has his seat. During the circuit, darkness prevails in the north. It is here that Set's powers are stationed, whose purpose is to corrupt. From the petals of flowers to the Milky Way galaxy, this clockwise motion is familiar to ritualists because it represents life's fundamental movement. Before the foundation ceremony, the quarters should be marked using an accurate compass. Ancient cultures performed the Pejishish rite, Pej to stretch, Shish, cord. There were two divine representatives at night ritual, the royal people and a priestess representing Seshat, the measurer. The attendant priests had already installed an astronomical point on a cord with the royal person gazing at the sky through the headdress of the priestess and stretching the cable from that point to mark the temple's axis. By tapping precious metal stakes into the ground with a mallet, the monarch established the corners of the temple. The protocol of the direction should also be considered when considering sacred space. Because of the geodetic orientation of the Nile, ancient Egyptians believed the right side to be passive. Observers always looked south, the river's source, with their backs to the north. According to this stance, the right side is the west, which represents sunsets and death, and the left side represents sun rises and renewal. Therefore, the dark side is on the right, while the light side is on the left. Due to this reason, hymns and prayers recited at dusk faced the south to avoid the dark forces that drove people toward the west. By using symbolism, a temple should be exposed to specific light directions. Especially if the sunrise comes from the east or the south, choosing a temple where light floods the space is desirable. There is no custom in Egypt of performing the rite of consecration at the beginning of each ceremony, contrary to European ceremonial traditions. If a ritual is intended to create a new spiritual framework, it should be performed at an opportune time of year, such as the spring or autumnal equinox, with powerful and balanced earth forces. 
Once the Neteru were summoned to create the temple, the Egyptians considered their presence there as long as they provided offerings and were honored there. In addition, dismantling the temple was the only way to banish their influences. However, it was believed that even the dust of the sacred precinct held powers that survived through the ages. It may not be possible until the dedicated space is prepared according to the basic design features of the ancient temple and a cosmically appropriate time is chosen, such as new moon or solar ingress. It is not until the divine house is animated in the cosmic dimensions that it becomes a functioning temple. Whenever possible, the last rite is performed, the ceremony of opening the mouth, which gives the divine house life in all dimensions. As well as the consecration of temple space, the Mesin ceremony should be used to consecrate quarters in a temple member's home or private shrine. In ancient Egypt, such acts were regarded as planting seeds that would eventually bloom and create a larger environment for their deities. As the ancient Egyptians repeated pharaonic investments and temple dedications annually, the rite of establishing the four quarters could be repeated annually. The repetition of the tradition asserts the original intent of the participants and strengthens their connection with the sacred space. While this ritual incorporates the Neteru of Heliopolitan rhythm, some practitioners may feel uncomfortable with the establishment of Set in the northern quarter because of his association with hostile forces. Those who participate in the ritual can be protected from the shadow world by the Neter Anpu, whose visage may seem more benign to the participants. The Divine House Mesen Het Neter Anciently, the images of temple gods were laid into the ground to represent their descent into the physical realm as members of the living. Nut, Sky, and Geb, Earth, the divine parents, are invoked before the quarters are brought into this ceremony. A procession follows the invocation. In this instance, a statue or image of Neteru from the temple is brought into the space and the rituals continue in a circle. The next phase involves establishing each quarter in two stages. The first Hikau, magical recitation, is spoken to call forth the Neter of the quarter. In this context, the Neter is referred to in its image as a cosmic rudder that symbolically steers the temple. According to some papyri, the four corners of the solar bark, the four rudders, were adorned with Wajat eyes, the eyes of Heru. Chapter 148 of the Book of Going Forth identifies the greeting of the Four Rudders as the temple's most ancient and esoteric ritual, a secret that ensures the ritualist protection provided by the sky deities. Mesin Het Nete, Creating the Divine House, Hemu Aku Heri Ab Het, Ashemu En Pet Abtet, Eastern Rudder, Hemu Nechen Sheshmu Tawi Nefe En Petamentet, Rudder Western, Hemu Sechem Nefer En Petmetet, the Rudder of the North, Hemu Kenti Herab Het Jesheru En Petresi, the Rudder of the South. The practice of reciting the Hakao four times, Jed Medu, at each station is frequently cited for establishing the quarters. The ancient belief was that every corner of the temple or tomb had its equivalent in all four dimensions 
and setting those corners entailed a magic ritual for each one. A call is made to the elemental forces in the last phase. The traditional basic bricks may not be implanted in the temple ground at each quadrant of the building is already constructed, but during this phase, the sigils of the directions or the names of the rudders may be painted on the floor or images of the cardinal deities may be hung on the walls. The four bar of the sun god Ra is known as these deities. Another option for marking the cardinal quarters of the temple is to place images of the four winds at the stations, predominantly if the temple is intended to be a solar temple. Four poles or jed columns which represent the four pillars of Shu may be erected at the corners of the temple after the Mesen ceremony. Afterward, the opening of the mouth ceremony will be performed at a cosmically appropriate time, marking the temple's birth in time and space. Persona Dramatis Because the temple may not be formally established when it is dedicated, it may not have the appropriate ritual players for the offices of Keheb, Lector, Setem, Steward, and Urthekau, Temple Magician. During the founding of the ancient temples, the Keheb served in the role of the Divine Architect, Jehuti, Lord of Measures. Setem is the physical manifestation of Ptah, a god of sacred patterns. Moreover, the Urthekau represents Seshat, the goddess of survey and astronomy. She then enters the cosmic order by physical and conscious means to summon the Neteru and direct their energy to the channels that embody, protect, and maintain the temple. In addition to presenting the offerings throughout the ritual, the Setem is responsible for preserving the ritual paraphernalia, such as images of deities and elemental substances. Sacred texts are recited by Keheb, and ancient formulas are pronounced by Urthekau. Forces of the Elementals In addition to the elemental invocation, another preliminary rite in theurgy invites the creative energies of nature into a ceremony. Ideally, natural elements should be used to form the appearance of a divine presence rather than the vitality of the ritual participants. This practice involves invoking the elemental forces after the temple's four quarters consecration, as it did in ancient times, or at another appropriate time such as the summer or winter solstices. Earth's vital force was either exalted or concentrated during these periods. The elemental forces are usually personified as spirit beings, angels, or nature gods. No matter which cosmology is employed, they almost universally represent the five cosmic elements of fire, earth, air, water, and quintessence. The Egyptians named Am, Tar, As, and Nu the four elements. In the ritual sphere, the quintessence, or fifth element, is brought by Kefri, the deity of unceasing renewal. With the unique humming of the scarab's wings, this element symbolizes the boundless emanation of Sa in the universe. The four sons of Heru-Imset, Daumutef, Kepsinuf, and Harpy represent the features that make up physical existence in this practice. Heru's energetic constitution consists of the four spirits known as the four sons of Heru. 
The nature and origin of these genii are revealed in two crucial chapters of the Book of Going Forth. In chapter 112, they first appear after Heru's battle with Set results in his loss of an eye. Heru is given these four entities to serve him in all future acts of magic aimed at restoring nature and human function lost to the elements, affirming the vitalizing powers of the elemental spirits. There are four stages of matter in the universe according to cosmology. Solid, earth, liquid, water, gaseous, air, and plasma, fire. During the invocation of the elemental spirits, a substance regarded as the receptor of the fundamental force is offered to them. According to tradition, the correspondences of the five elements denotes the Egyptian forms. A sacred precinct soil is the ideal substance for earth instead of salt sore nations. Water should, however, be drawn from a living source, flowing if possible, and metal or clay braziers are preferred over candles or oil lamps. Using the Hekau, the four genii and Kepri are empowered, and the elemental spirits are called and directed to the place of manifestation. When they are called forth, it is essential to bring the elemental receptors together on the altar, light a lamp, pour water, burn incense, and uncover salt or earth. An image of the Neter of the season is anointed with temple oil for the fifth element. The oil is poured on the altar or ran on the image. The foundation deposits for a temple may be implanted at this stage if it is fortunate enough to own its land. In conclusion, those who participate in a pure offering may be served fresh fruit and floral trays afterward. In addition, it is possible at this time to erect the temple pillars, since the elemental forces have descended to form etherically the Divine House. Rather than pillars, the altar may be placed on the axis of the temple, and upon it the sacred stone of the temple may be exhibited as a representative of the holy mound upon which the Neter has rested. Elemental spirits were not called upon by a strict order in ancient times. Quintessence, water, fire, earth and air are some of the creation cycles some cultures follow. Other cultures, probably in keeping with heavenly bodies crossing the horizons, have followed the diurnal cycle of fire east, water south, air west, earth north, and quintessence center. Like other physical sciences, mathematics was developed early in Egyptian history and was based on natural phenomena. It has led to speculation about their practical and symbolic meaning, and it is understood that the differences refer to their location and function. Land, for instance, is measured in cubits different from architecture. Several cubit measuring rods have been found in tombs and engraved in temples, and the cubit was the virtual measuring instrument for surfaces. An art canon that originated in early antiquity fulfilled the demands for balance, symmetry, and the ideal proportions of the human figure in temple art. Inscriptions of the gods, human beings, symbolic regalia, and texts were all rendered about this canon, believed to be divinely bestowed on humans. All figures and scenes are arranged on a square grid based on the royal cubit measure, where one square equals half a cubit. The statistics will be in symmetrical balance in the scene while also matching the ideal body size. 
Ancient texts describe this work as having been rendered in truth, mart, and a cubit rod is associated with each statement to indicate the use of the divine canon. <laughs>